and welcome to Ultrasounds, a podcast by OB-GYN Delivered. I'm Rachel. And I'm Asafri. Today, we'll be delving into the wonderful world of contraception and contraception counseling. We're so excited to have Dr. Sierra Starr joining us today. Dr. Starr is a current PGY-5 Complex Family Planning Fellow at the University of Michigan. She received her MD at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and then completed OB-GYN residency at the University of Massachusetts. Her current clinical and research interests include expanding equitable access to abortion care, and she also recently gave a grand rounds as a chief resident on the depiction of abortion in visual arts. In her free time, she enjoys ceramics, crochet, and cultivating her many houseplants. Dr. Starr, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So before we begin, we wanted to emphasize how crucial contraceptive counseling and contraceptive access are to an individual's reproductive, psychosocial, and also overall health and wellness. However, it's also important to acknowledge the devastating history of coercion and bias um, as it relates to contraceptive provision, especially with forced sterilization and um, LARC distribution in minority and other vulnerable populations. Furthermore, it's essential to incorporate a reproductive justice framework when approaching all conversations about contraception. The reproductive justice framework ensures that individuals are able to make informed decisions about their body and that all individuals have the right to have a child, have the right to not have a child, and also have the right to parent children in safe and healthy environments. Providers must use shared decision-making to provide individualized counseling to maintain patient autonomy and also ensure that patients receive contraception methods that best address their specific needs. Thank you so much for kind of giving us that context to be thinking about this whole conversation we're going to have for the rest of the episode of Sovereign. And with that, we'll move into our first case. So we have a 36-year-old G1-P1 woman with no significant past medical history presenting to her general gynecologist for her annual exam. She is currently sexually active with her male partner and uses condoms as protection against sexually transmitted infections. She also states that she has heavy menstrual cycles with cramping that last seven to eight days. She's interested in discussing contraception options today as she does not wish to have additional children for the next year. However, she's interested in possibly having more children in the future. On further history, she reports that she has a 20-pack year history of tobacco use and currently smokes two packs of cigarettes per day. Asavri, what are your initial thoughts on which contraceptive method you would or would not recommend for this patient? Awesome. Thanks, Rachel. So I think it's really important to just start off by taking a good history, and it seems like you've done that already. So history, meaning the medical, sexual, and menstrual histories. It's also essential to understand your patient's priorities and their reproductive health. This particular patient uh, wants a temporary method of contraception since she wants to have children in the future. So that would automatically remove any permanent methods of contraception, like tubal ligation for her or recommending vasectomy for her partner from your list of recommendations. Additionally, she also has a history of heavy menstrual periods, some contraceptive methods like oral contraceptive pills, Depo-Provera, the levonorgestrel IUD also have the added benefit of menstrual suppression or better control of menstrual symptoms, while other contraceptive methods like the copper IUD or Paragard can sometimes worsen menstrual symptoms. So that's just something important to consider. 
Next, we can think about some contraindications that this patient has to receiving any particular contraceptive methods. This patient is greater than 35 years old, and she's also a current two-pack-per-day smoker. Thus, she does have an absolute contraindication to receiving any estrogen-containing contraceptives like the oral contraceptive pill. And this is because she has an increased risk of cardiovascular side effects. Other contraindications for receiving estrogen-containing um, contraceptives include being less than six weeks postpartum, having a history of hypertension, having a history of venous thromboembolism like DVT, PE, having a history of hypercoagulable disorders like factor V Leiden or antiphospholipid syndrome, history of ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular accident, if individuals have breast cancer currently, liver disease such as cirrhosis or having liver tumors, and then also if they have a history of migraines with aura. Thus, by kind of taking a more thorough history, you're able to have a more nuanced discussion of what contraceptive methods are safe for this patient. So Dr. Starr, what would your initial approach be in counseling this patient? So I always start my contraceptive counseling by eliciting the patient's goals and preferences for contraception. Sometimes patients already have strong preferences, but for other patients, they may not know what other goals you are asking about beyond pregnancy prevention. So it can be helpful to discuss the categories of things to consider when it comes to contraception to help them evaluate their own preferences. And that's how I start my counseling. These categories include efficacy or how well the method works, side effects and safety, non-contraceptive benefits, how the contraceptive physically gets into their body, and any fertility concerns such as permanence in their method or return to fertility after contraceptive cessation. Once I know their preferences, we can discuss more in depth the methods that meet their specific needs based on their preferences and are safe for them given any medical conditions. Patients absorb information in different ways, so I try to use a visual aid in my counseling, particularly one that has a pictogram representing efficacy with typical use, since we know that that kind of pictogram helps people better understand risk. I also send everyone home with written information about their method of choice as well. It's also important to discuss how their method does or does not prevent against sexually transmitted infections, which typically means discussing the concurrent use of barrier methods. Great. I really like that you mentioned using like a visual aid for counseling. I feel like that's not something that's been emphasized too much to me in med school so far, but I think is really important and really helpful for patients. And I know bedsider.org has a chart that a lot of physicians I've worked with like to use for that purpose. So thinking about those things that you just mentioned, we got a sense of this patient's preferences. Um, she doesn't want a permanent method. And otherwise, we'd, of course, want to dive more into those other categories you discussed. But with the information we have, which contraceptive methods would you recommend to this patient considering her contraindications we discussed? Yeah, so based on her age, current tobacco use, history of heavy menses, and her fertility goals, I would focus my discussion on progesterone-only pills, depo, IUDs, and the implant. But I do usually try to at least touch on every method for every person, including non-prescription methods such as fertility awareness and withdrawal, because I think it's important for everyone to understand all their options. And I will say, I rarely make a specific recommendation for a patient. I view my job more as setting the scene and providing the facts for the patient for them to make an informed choice about what works best for them. But for example, if this patient really is looking for lighter or no menses, I talk about how depo or a hormonal IUD are more likely to accomplish that goal. Absolutely. 
And you've touched on this sort of throughout how you've been discussing how you counsel patients, but what other strategies do you use to optimize patient autonomy and limit bias during these conversations about contraception? Yeah, and this is a really important question. Many patients have had a negative personal or family experience with birth control and are aware of the coercive and experimental ways contraception has been used in this country. And so, like you said, kind of my overall framework for sort of navigating the discussion is part of how I do that. Um, but there are, are also other things that I do. I try to mitigate bias by doing my counseling the same way every time in an effort not to care differently for different populations, specifically to avoid the documented bias towards LARC for patients who are low SES and people of color. I always make a point to acknowledge bias when I bring out that typical three-tiered contraceptive efficacy chart, uh, kind of like the bedside or one that you mentioned. I say that this chart is organized by efficacy because physicians are biased towards what works best. But there are things that you may care about more. So let's make sure that we prioritize them. I also think it's really important to discuss risks and side effects of patients so they know what to expect and are not surprised by anything happening to their body. This is very important, particularly when it comes to return to fertility. For example, with DEPO, the range of resumption of ovulation is 15 to 49 weeks after cessation. And that can be very upsetting if it was not initially discussed and someone desires to conceive after using the depot in a more quick manner. Another important component is respecting people's preferences. If they don't like the idea of a foreign body in the uterus, then the IUD is not for them. And that's that. And also remembering that they may not be ready to pick a method that day and it's okay for them to leave the clinic without contraception and come back when they're ready. I think those are all really helpful things to think about, especially picked up on your kind of you have a way that you do counseling and you do it that way every single time. And I think that's something helpful to think about, especially for our level as med students. I think we're obviously still kind of developing our own style of practice and things like that, but something helpful to think about going forward of like, you know, how can I approach these conversations similarly with each patient as I'm developing that kind of script or schema in my head for counseling? And the last question we want to ask you about this vignette, as we talked about with this patient, we would want to pursue progesterone-only methods because of her health history. And we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the new FDA-approved over-the-counter contraceptive pill, which is the progesterone-only pill, and how you anticipate this might change practice. Yes, this is a very exciting thing. So in July of this year, a progesterone-only pill called Opil uh, was approved for over-the-counter use and should be available in early 2024 for patients of all ages. OTC birth control helps mitigate barriers related to transportation, insurance status, long wait times for appointments, or ability to get time off work to come see a physician. Research shows that over-the-counter birth control availability particularly benefits those already experiencing barriers to contraception, such as youth and uninsured patients. I also think it's very important for patients who may be reluctant or unable to come to the office, such as trans patients, undocumented patients, patients in a course of relationship. So it just allows more ways to obtain birth control. Overall, this is a really important change for our practice as it promotes equity. Additionally, the data supports that patients are able to safely self-screen for contraindications and understand side effects from labels. So I hope that more contraceptive options are available over the counter in the future, such as the combined pill, and that insurances will actually cover them, which unfortunately may not be the case for OPIL when it becomes available. And this will be an important state-level advocacy opportunity with different regulations needed for public and private insurance to actually pay for the medication when it's over the counter. Awesome. Yeah, that's really helpful. I don't know too much about this kind of new change. So that's helpful to know. And also really important point about insurance coverage and that cost may still be an issue for patients who are trying to access the pill over the counter. 
So with that, we'll move into our next case. So here we have a 24-year-old healthy G3P2 woman presenting to her obstetrician for her prenatal care visit at 36 weeks and two days. In addition to routine prenatal counseling, screening, and birth planning, you decide to discuss postpartum contraception. Of note, she is planning to use a combination of breastfeeding and formula feeding to feed her infant. Asavri, why is it so important to talk about postpartum contraception during prenatal care? So as we've discussed in previous podcast episodes, we know that 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned at baseline. This is especially relevant in the postpartum population because more than 50% of individuals will become sexually active within six weeks of postpartum. Also, lactational amenorrhea is an imperfect contraception method, especially if the individual is unable to pump or feed regularly or is using formula feeding in addition to breastfeeding to feed her infant. Furthermore, uh, non-breastfeeding individuals also ovulate as early as 25 days postpartum. All of these factors are that this is an issue because short interpregnancy intervals or interpregnancy intervals less than 18 months are associated with an increased risk of preterm delivery and worse neonatal outcomes like low birth weight and prematurity. The highest risk of preterm birth and low birth weight actually occurs when pregnancy is conceived within six months of the previous delivery. So there are lots of reasons why it's important to discuss postpartum contraception in the prenatal care setting. Moreover, 40% of individuals do not return for their six-week postpartum period visit for a variety of reasons, including poor access to care, unstable housing, unstable transportation, lack of childcare, lack of psychosocial support, and lack of insurance coverage of postpartum visits. These barriers can also prevent further discussion and prescription of postpartum contraception in the actual postpartum period. So all of these uh, reasons kind of show why it's important to discuss postpartum contraception and prenatal care visits. Dr. Starr, can you talk about when the ideal time is to address postpartum contraception during prenatal care and what you've seen done usually? So as long as there is adequate time to discuss and counsel before delivery, the exact timing is not critical. I typically start bringing it up around 28 weeks to allow the patient time to consider their options and for me to complete any necessary planning. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And we're also wondering how you kind of approach this conversation in general. I found at least when I brought this up with patients, sometimes it seems like they're very surprised and kind of makes sense, right? They're pregnant and thinking more about having their baby versus maybe future family planning. So how do you kind of approach bringing up this topic for people who maybe are not particularly thinking about it while they're pregnant. So in addition to the counseling points we've already covered, it's important to consider a couple different things when you're talking about postpartum contraception. Uh, You have to consider implications on breastfeeding. It's also important to do any specific counseling and planning for any method that needs to happen during the delivery hospitalization, such as a post-placental IUD or surgical sterilization. And when what you just described happens to me, oftentimes I say, there are things that we can do while you're in the hospital for your delivery that relate to contraception, which is why it's important that we talk about and plan for it now. And then it's also really important to take into account contraindications specific to the postpartum period, namely the risk of thromboembolism, which is even higher in the postpartum period compared to pregnancy, in fact, five times higher and between 20 and 80 times increased from non-pregnant baseline. So accordingly, 
estrogen containing methods, um, the combined hormonal pill, the patch and the ring are not recommended until three to six weeks after delivery due to their associated increased risk of VTE. Of these, breastfeeding implications is a frequent question from patients and there is a lot of misinformation on this topic. Patients and providers may believe that no method is compatible with breastfeeding, which is not true. Non-hormonal methods such as the copper IUD, sterilization, and barrier methods have no safety concerns with respect to breastfeeding. The progesterone-only methods are safe for immediate use after delivery. Most studies suggest that immediate use of progesterone-only pills, the injection, IUD, and implant do not interfere with lactogenesis or breastfeeding despite the role of progesterone withdrawal in lactogenesis. Combined hormonal methods are contraindicated as we discussed due to the VTE risk, and there is some older data that shows a decrease in milk volume in breastfeeding with combined hormonal pills, but there's some newer data that does not show this. The effects of hormonal contraception on breastfeeding has been the subject of a lot of research and a full review is beyond the scope of this podcast. But I will say an important part of being patient-centered is respecting patients' concern about effect on milk supply and supporting their decision to not use contraception due to that concern after reviewing the data with them. And it's also important to take into account other risk factors for low milk supply, such as a preterm infant, prior difficulty with breastfeeding, obesity, and consider that as a part of this contraceptive counseling discussion. Gotcha. Yeah, I've definitely seen in the clinical space a lot of confusion about specifically like estrogen-containing methods and breastfeeding. So that's really helpful to have that kind of context to bring up. So as you mentioned, like you said, there's some things we can do in the hospital after a patient gives birth, like potentially inserting an IUD. So let's say this patient decided they wanted to pursue um, a LARC as her contraceptive method for postpartum. How do you kind of counsel or what do you think about the benefits and risks of immediate postpartum IUD insertion versus waiting until that six-week postpartum appointment for patients? Yeah, so an immediate postpartum IUD is inserted 10 minutes after delivery and can be done in both a vaginal and cesarean delivery. It avoids the need for an additional procedure for insertion, and it means that the patient's contraceptive method of choice is in place upon discharge from the delivery hospitalization, which is both convenient and helpful for patients who may not be able to attend their postpartum visit. Uh, There are some increased risks with immediate postpartum insertion. The risk of expulsion, spontaneous expulsion, is increased, and that may be as high as 10 to 27 percent, which is an important thing to counsel the patient about both the risk of it happening and then also how to recognize it if it's happening and what to do. However, there is a study that shows that the overall continuation rate is higher at six months in the postplacental group compared to the group intending to get the IUD at their six-week visit as patients may not actually show up for that visit or the IUD is not put in at that visit for some reason. Um, There isn't also an increased risk of an IUD being malpositioned when inserted immediately postpartum, so it's important to discuss that as well. And additionally, some insurances do not cover immediate postpartum insertion, which can be a barrier to that happening. But I think you know, there are benefits and drawbacks to both time points. And it's just important to have the discussion with your patient and figure out what works best for them. Yeah, that's really helpful context to know, as well as we're talking to patients about their options. On this similar train of things we can do sort of before they're discharged from the hospital after birth is tubal ligation. And Asavri and I have both seen that individuals who are planning to do this as their contraceptive method of choice 
need to fill out additional paperwork or consent if they have Medicaid insurance. And can you speak a bit on why this policy exists and what delays or barriers to care could this potentially cause, but what are the benefits of this policy? So the paperwork you were referring to is a consent to sterilization that comes from the state, which is required to be signed 30 days prior to the surgery for patients that have Medicaid, with some exceptions for emergency deliveries. And this paperwork does not apply to people who are privately insured. This paperwork and the 30-day wait period exists because of the history of forced sterilization of vulnerable populations in this country. This dates back to the eugenics movement and the court case Buck v. Bell in 1927 that established a legal precedent for eugenic sterilization. And unfortunately, there are many instances of Black, Latinx, and Native American patients being coercively or unknowingly sterilized between the 1930s and 1970s, often through federally funded programs. Just as an example of the magnitude of this injustice, one of every four Native American individuals with uterus were sterilized in the 1960s and 70s by the Indian Health Service, which is just a staggering thing to know. But this is not solely an issue of the past. Incarcerated patients were coercively and illegally sterilized in California between 2006 and 2010. And then there were also the disturbing reports of forced hysterectomies in ICE detention centers. The Medicaid paperwork was created to prevent coercive sterilization. However, I have certainly taken care of patients who did not get their wanted sterilization at the time of delivery due to issues with this paperwork. It was intended to keep people safe, however, can be a barrier to care and one that only applies to people that are publicly insured. This is also particularly problematic since when you view it in the larger landscape of barriers to postpartum sterilization, one third of individuals who desire postpartum sterilization will not have it done because of lack of room in the OR, physician availability, or incomplete consent forms. And we know that this has consequences since 47% of individuals who leave without having a desired postpartum sterilization will become pregnant within the next year. Additionally, some patients may lose their Medicaid six weeks after they deliver and the surgery will no longer be covered. All this to say, there are many reasons why we should work towards undoing barriers towards wanted sterilizations at the time of delivery. Preventing coercive sterilization is critically important, but I do worry that the current system with the Medicaid paperwork is doing more harm than good and targeting specifically patients with low socioeconomic status and patients of color. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for going through that historical context with us. And as you mentioned earlier, our patients are aware of these historical events and they definitely, you know, bring that knowledge with them to the office when we're discussing these things. So I think it's also so important that we are aware of the history too, to understand more where our patients are coming from and approach counseling in a non-biased way as we've been discussing. Yeah, also good to kind of think about the policy was created for a good reason, but is imperfect and kind of how it's impacting people. But we'll move into case three. So this is a 31-year-old milliparous woman with no significant past medical history presenting to her gynecologist for an urgent visit. She states that she has forgotten to take her oral contraceptive pills for the past two weeks and had unprotected sexual intercourse with a male partner three days ago. She emphasizes that she does not want to become pregnant and is interested in emergency contraception. Asabri, what are some emergency contraception methods that are available for this patient? So when most people think of emergency contraception, Interception, they automatically think of plan B or the morning after pill. So plan B is levonorgestrel, 
progesterol, which is a progestin-only pill that prevents or delays ovulation. This emergency contraceptive method is available over-the-counter at pharmacies and has no current age restriction. Plan B is effective for up to three days after unprotected intercourse, so it would be effective for this patient. However, it's most effective within 24 hours of unprotected intercourse, and its effectiveness also decreases each day. Another disadvantage of Plan B is that it's also less effective in individuals who are over 165 pounds or in individuals who have BMIs of greater than 30. Plan B is definitely not the only emergency contraceptive method. There are several others, including uh, combined oral contraceptive pills, eulipristal acetate, which is a selective progesterone receptor modulator. You can also use the Mirena or Liletta IUD as emergency contraception. And then there's also the copper IUD. Combined estrogen, progestin, oral contraceptive pills can be used as emergency contraception for up to five days from unprotected intercourse, and different regimens are used for emergency contraception. These pills primarily work by preventing ovulation and also thickening the cervical mucus. Eulopristal acetate is the selective uh, progesterone receptor modulator, and it prevents pregnancy by binding progesterone receptors to prevent and delay ovulation and also decrease endometrial thickness. This can be taken within five days of unprotected intercourse, and it's equally effective on all five days. However, this should also be taken as soon as possible. It's also less effective in individuals who are greater than 195 pounds or in individuals who have BMIs over 35. And kind of like I mentioned earlier, the Mirena and Liletta IUD can also be used as emergency contraception too. And these also have a similar uh, mechanism of action as the eulopristal acetate since it's a progesterone containing IUD. The most effective form of emergency contraception is the copper IUD. It's 99% effective at preventing pregnancy and also can be used up to five days after unprotected intercourse. It works by creating a toxic uterine environment that prevents sperm viability. Its effectiveness on day one post-unprotected intercourse is the same as if it's inserted day five. So this is one of the reasons why this could be a more preferred method and more effective method of emergency contraception. Copper IUDs also have the additional benefit of being in place for up to 12 years if that's what the individual desires for a long-term contraception too. Dr. Starr, can you talk about your approach to discussing emergency contraception and how this is similar or different to your routine contraception counseling that you usually do? So one of the nice differences is that there are essentially no contraindications to emergency contraception, with pregnancy being the only absolute contraindication as it just won't be effective. And then there are a few other rare circumstances such as a drug allergy, allergy to to copper for the copper IUD or active pelvic infection or significant distortion of the uterine cavity for either of the IUDs. But overall, it can essentially be used for anyone. It's also important to discuss the potential side effects so people know what to expect. For Plan B and Ella, that can be short-lasting nausea, headache, irregular bleeding, uh, and abdominal pain. And then I do want to um, highlight specifically that the 52 milligram hormonal IUD is now also a first line option for emergency contraception, like you guys mentioned. And this is a recent change after a 2021 non-inferiority trial comparing it with the copper IUD. So that's another great option given that many patients prefer the hormonal IUD side effect profile. But one thing that I will say about counseling these patients is since this is a medication that's available over the counter, or you may have 
prescribed at a previous visit. So a patient just has it as something that they can take whenever is needed. Oftentimes you don't actually encounter these patients and do a lot of counseling when people are using the medication. So it's helpful if you can try to talk about it ahead of time, like an annual visit or a a different gynecology visit. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking on that line of the fact that we often aren't encountering these patients in the moments they're using emergency contraception, how does that kind of play into the accessibility of IUDs in particular for this purpose? Yeah. And so I think that's something that clinics have sort of struggled with because even if a patient calls in requesting an IUD for emergency contraception, you need to get them in in the next five days, which may not always be possible depending on kind of the clinic you work in. So trying to develop protocols where you have a same day procedure, you have actually the actual physical IUD in the building ready for someone who needs it. Um, And then I also just think talking about it so people are aware because many patients don't know to call in and ask for that in the setting of needing emergency contraception. Definitely. And can you touch on other barriers that individuals might face to accessing emergency contraception in general? Yeah. And I think the the biggest barrier is that people just don't know about emergency contraception or how to use it correctly, or they just don't think of it um, when they're in that situation of having had unprotected intercourse. So it can be helpful to discuss it at routine visits if the opportunity arises. There's also some data that shows that providers don't feel comfortable discussing emergency contraception. So being informed um, about the different options and why you might suggest one or the other to your patient, and then actually discussing it with your patients is something that you could really do to help. There can also be issues finding a pharmacy that has it, though studies show that this has improved since Plan B became available over the counter. The medication is just more widely available. And unfortunately, in one of the places that I used to work, I would hear about pharmacy employees refusing to dispense it. So it's important to figure out if that's an issue in the area where you practice and finding pharmacies where you know your patients are able to successfully access these medications. Definitely. Then we're also wondering how you use any counseling about emergency contraception as a window to counsel about other things like safe sex practices or the initiation of a longer term contraceptive method. So no testing of any kind is needed for the provision of emergency contraception, but you're right, it can be a really great time to discuss safe sex and contraception. I would offer everyone STI screening and then also consider shared decision-making about HIV, post-exposure, and pre-exposure prophylaxis for patients at increased risk. So it could be an opportunity to have those discussions. It's also important to screen for intimate partner violence and human trafficking at these visits, since we know those populations have a higher risk of unprotected intercourse course. And it's just a great time to talk about contraception if a patient is interested. Just because they're seeking emergency contraception doesn't mean they are necessarily interested in contraception as patients are fluid in their fertility goals. But I would offer a discussion of contraception to anyone coming to me for emergency contraception. I re- appreciate you know calling back to some of your earlier points too, that just because someone's coming in for emergency contraception doesn't necessarily mean they're interested in a longer term method and just something to keep in mind in general as well. But that concludes our discussion on contraceptive counseling today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Starr. Thank you so much for having me. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe to Ultrasounds wherever you get your podcasts. For high-yield topic reviews and recent news, you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at obgyne underscore delivered or find more topic review outlines and free question banks at our website, www.obgynedelivered.com. And always remember, we put in the labor so you can deliver.